0: Welcome to RAPM Focus, a podcast devoted to exploring the provocative and impactful aspects of the research published in Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. Here, we'll make sure to discuss and debate the findings that matter most for clinicians, patients, and policymakers. I'm Brian Seitz, Editor-in-Chief. I am an anesthesiologist and professor at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. At RAPM, we believe well-done pain medicine improves health and well-being. I'll work to keep the discussion relevant and factual. Thanks for joining us, let's get started. What I love about perioperative medicine is that physicians are constantly innovating, studying and trying to challenge the status quo. This is especially true in acute pain management as evidenced by the plethora of new regional anesthesia techniques and enhanced recovery programs. One of the questions that has emerged in the last five years or so is whether or not perioperative acute pain therapies can translate into meaningful differences in outcomes that move beyond the traditional 24-hour pain scores. The background idea for the investigation we are talking about today is that surgery may represent an environment known as a transitional pain state that could result in a patient developing chronic pain following surgery. Furthermore, the idea that specific medical interventions instituted by anesthesiologists may thwart or abort this process is extremely exciting given that the development of chronic pain is likely a one-way trip to a very, very bad place. Chronic pain is a huge public health issue given the human and economic impact. Today we're joined by Dr. John Kramer. Dr. John Kramer is an associate professor in the Faculty of Medicine, Department of Anesthesiology, Pharmacology, and Therapeutics and principal investigator at ICORD at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. His lab is focused on improving outcomes for individuals with spinal cord injury in neuropathic pain. A basic stream of research is addressing the role of CNS anatomy and function in determining sensitivity to pain. So John, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks Brian, my pleasure. Recently, John was the senior author for a very interesting systematic review, John, you explicitly state that in order to inform the design and reporting of future studies, the purpose of your review was to examine the quality of the current published meta-analyses. Rappam was very excited to support your work, especially this niche angle of assessing quality. The reality is that systematic reviews and meta-analyses are the main drivers of policy, evidence-based guidelines, and funding decisions. The problem is that many of them are fraught with errors, and the amount of resources needed to peer review them are massive. We really do struggle with this at RAPM. Few people truly have the skills to assess the statistical methodologies that are growing more complex each year. For instance, trial sequential analysis, network meta-analysis, and meta-regression. So, to start things off, John, can you tell us a little bit about the background story of why your group came up with the idea to examine the topic? you must have suspected that there were problems with the literature
1: yeah so i mean we really really got into this um it relates to my spinal cord injury background so spinal cord injury you know is this defined very uh rapid onset condition um and in the months that uh follow the the injury you have the development of chronic neuropathic pain and like you said i mean this is something that we think doesn't go away once it uh, once it starts so you're left managing it pretty much for a lifetime. Uh, And we've been interested in really that period early um, post-injury if there's an opportunity to prevent uh, chronic pain. And so spinal cord injury is a a bit of a unique condition that way. And really the the most obvious comparison is something like chronic uh, post-surgical pain, where again, you have a very defined onset. And in in the case of chronic post-surgical pain, I mean, you have some advantage in that you can actually test the person at baseline before. So you know about the characteristics of the individual before the event happens. Uh, Obviously, we don't have that option in spinal cord injury. You don't know when these events are going to happen and and so on. So you can't quite do that. But you do have a, a, let's say, a window of opportunity where you might be able to intervene uh, before the neuropathic pain has developed and and ultimately prevent it. So with that kind of in, in the background, when... Really tried to survey the literature, um, and we we started. I asked a student, um, the uh, the first author uh, of this particular paper, Rachel McGregor, to to look at the uh, the systematic reviews and meta analyses that already exist in this area. I knew several that existed, and you know the idea was okay. Well, let's find a consistent answer there, and and if we find a consistent answer there, then you know if the idea that you can prevent it. Uh, prevent the, the onset of chronic pain in post-surgical, uh, uh, post-surgical fields. Well, you know maybe we could do it in spinal cord injury, um, and we were specifically, I should say, focused with you know pregabalin, gabapentin, some of the. Uh, neuropathic pain meds, um, which have been used uh, uh, quite a number of times in, for chronic post-surgical pain. So, you know, we started surveying this literature and what we found is just, I mean, it depended on the review you looked at. You, one answer from one systematic review, uh, you know, would tell you, yep, there's evidence that suggests it exists. Another would tell you there's, you know, there's not enough evidence to really support the use of these uh, perioperative interventions to, to prevent the development of pain.
0: That point really kind of just resonated with me, this, this kind of back and forth, which we see so often uh, in, in, in even recommendations. And we know that, we know that, um, quote, expert opinion has some issues with its precision. <laughs> uh, upwards of around 40% uh, of evidence-based guidelines are found to be wrong or harmful within 10 years of their issuing. And so this this topic itself, which uh, hasn't reached really to the level of guidelines, is going to be much more, I assume, labile. Did that? I mean, like just on face value, like how like that must make you as a someone interested in this area really a little bit concerned.
1: Well, exactly, because it was like you know the, the idea was okay if I can't go to the literature and sift through this and find an answer, what is your you know, the, the clinician is turning to the literature to try to inform their practice. Which one are they going to read and which one are they going to believe? Um, and, you know, what's the kind of, quote unquote, the best, the the best of all of these analyses? And I think that, you know, we have to keep in mind there's some obvious reasons why some of them differed. Some of them focused on, you know, specific cohorts of chronic pain. They may have only looked at... Um, you know breast surgery as their as their uh, surgical intervention, some included you know a, a wide range of uh, chronic pain con- or, or sorry of uh, surgical interventions. so there were some obvious reasons, but what we wanted to understand were the reasons that weren't so obvious. Why were there differences emerging um, in, in these studies that could be actually linked back to methodological issues with the the type of systematic review or meta-analysis that was done?
0: We're definitely going to get 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 into that because that's going to be really important for our readers to get a sense of. Uh, you know, and I think a little bit back about um, some of my training and, you know, as a resident, you'd see all these different approaches from your different mentors and, and, and attendings. And, you know, you sometimes get a little frustrated, like, well, why is Dr. X doing it this way and Dr. Y doing it that way? And uh, the reality is the, the that no one really necessarily would know that what which way w- was better. And, and, and I had this one attending used to always tell me, Brian, the only thing anesthesiologists agree on is that you need to put the endotracheal tube past the vocal cords. Uh, after that, <laughs> after that, everything is up and up for uh, up for grabs. So I, I think I thought about that a little bit when I was reading your paper. Um, you know, and I also I also really am interested in this idea of um, equipose. Um, you know, in a, in a clinical trial, it, it really is nice when authors really have a sense of equipose and it, what that means is that they really just don't know which 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 treatment or or control is really better and and, and is really the in theory the foundation of what you need before you you start a trial however often i find with systematic reviews and meta-analyses people are really trying to come into it from almost like a policy um, angle and they really want to kind of prove something um, and so, 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 just as like a background, do you think that researchers in general have a sense of equipoise around this topic, uh, in, in particular about whether or not anesthesiologists can actually influence this process? The reason why I say that is because it's incredibly alluring to think that we would have the ability to uh, influence this incredibly complex and, 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 and problematic uh, transitional state. And, you know, I have my doubts, you know, that mechanistically that's possible, but I'm just kind of curious to get your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot at play here um, and a lot of um, issues to consider. One, you know, the it relates a little bit to publication bias. So uh, and my thought there is, you know, publishing in, a meta-analysis world of, an, of a null result when the fundamental trials that underlie that result are problematic. And I say that because many of the trials that make up these systematic reviews and meta-analyses in the chronic post-surgical pain, they're not focused on chronic post-surgical pain they're often focused on acute post-surgical pain. So can we do something perioperatively that, you know, 24 hours to 72 hours post-surgery, you know, there's there's some reduction in pain meds and pain severity and that kind of thing. And so the, the focus is always there. And then maybe, you know, they follow it out to six months, three months, a year, and they they happen to track chronic pain. So, you know, the, it's, it's very problematic to then say, okay, we're going to do a, a meta-analysis on those outcomes because those outcomes are very rarely reported to the, to the, to the full extent that you'd want with cupane. So now you have to make decisions of what those outcomes are. And the problem that that can lead to, in my impression, which relates to publication bias, if you have a small number of studies, I mean, and, and kind of limited in, in, um, in, in the conduct of the original trials that underlie the meta-analyses, no one's gonna be that surprised by the fact that these results are negative, right? So there's, you know, this is classic publication bias, the idea that we need to find a positive result. And I do think that there's probably, you know, there's some interest from the anesthesiology world to want to change that outcome. It's a huge outcome to change chronic pain. We know it's a huge problem. Um, So I do think that that sets up a bit of a challenge. Um, And I, in defining ahead of time, you know, the meta-analysis and systematic review world has moved to, you know, this registration and ahead of time saying, this is what the outcome should be. And, and, and this is how we're gonna review these studies and pull the outcome. Well, I can tell you in the in the chronic post-surgical pain world that's, you, you almost have to do it on a case by case basis. So you have to look at a trial and say, okay, this is the best I can define what chronic pain is. It might come from the, the loose definition that they provide in the original study, but I have to massage out what that definition means. And obviously, when you have that seeping into your meta-analysis, and I'm not applying I want to emphasize throughout this entire thing. I don't blame anyone. this isn't me being overly critical of the people doing it. I think they're doing the best that they can. but obviously, the bias creeps in there if you have you know the impression that pregabalin, gabapentin works to prevent the onset of chronic pain then you know, you're know you going to read that, that original study differently than someone who doesn't think that it has that advantage. So I think that that equipose question um, can become a, a major issue with these types of studies.
0: That's a fantastic um, uh, answer in terms of, uh, of dealing with these, these complex issues around, around equipose and, and, and publication bias. And I want the readers to be really um, uh, clear on this. And, and you stressed this already, John, that uh, these studies were not designed originally to uh, test whether or not patients are going to transition to chronic post-surgical pain. They were around acute pain management. So the whole methodological soundness on, a, on just face value is going to be less than if the study was actually structured uh, accordingly. And that's re- a really important point. But the, the only way to assess it is really in the form of a meta-analysis because, um, because of power. You're going to need to do exactly, that. and th- that
1: that's a hugely important point because this isn't your, you know, there's meta analyses, you know, these big meta analyses on you know antidepressive interventions or you know cardiovascular medications, and and you know they're they're based on these trials that are specifically trying to chronic post surgical pain may not have a, a, a properly randomized, well-powered, controlled study. They rarely, you know, they rarely are, you know, a couple hundreds of uh, patients might be the, the highest numbers you see. And we know, you know, that's just not going to be enough to look at an intervention, you know, that's powered to significantly detect a, a reduction in the um, the incidence and ultimately the prevalence of chronic pain. So we are 100, we are going to be reliant on good meta-analysis. So I think that's actually a unique, unique part of this is that, the field is going to rely on a meta-analysis to ultimately inform uh, the decision. There's really not going to be the single RCT um, that, that will give us, you know, this, this unified answer.
0: But, but biologically speaking from your background in spinal cord injury and your, your research experience, the, uh, the, 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 the theoretically, uh, 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 I, I'm kind of stuttering. I hope hopefully Dan will take this out, but theoretically, the biological mechanism that is under uh, playing the potential for uh, uh, therapy to help prevent transition states would center around something to do with neuromodulation, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the general idea, um, and this actually is, I think, it, probably part of the issue as well, is that it's it's pre- it could prevent one type of of chronic pain developing in my opinion. So you take something like pregabalin and gabapentin, these, you know, these central nervous system acting drugs, they're good, they're somewhat good for neuropathic pain, that could probably be the focus of an entire another podcast. Um, And the idea that, okay, so there's this defined event, and we can block or limit the amount of something like central sensitization that happens. And we think that this is fundamentally important for the the development of neuropathic pain. So, you know, whatever peripheral cue that happens, some peripheral damage related to surgery, that peripheral damage happens. It cues the central nervous system to sensitize. The peripheral damage goes away, but now you have this central event that's happened. This and there's plasticity that we think that happens, this aberrant plasticity that's happening in the spinal cord, uh, and then all the way up the nervous system, which is now the central driver of it. But the issue this actually this creates is that often, you know, this is not well defined in some of these in these trials. They're looking at chronic pain, um, not necessarily chronic neuropathic pain, which, admittedly becomes a bit of a a, a huge nightmare because you only will have a a smaller percentage of your patients. So now you're going to have to recruit even more, you know, even a larger study sample to identify just those who are developing chronic uh, neuropathic pain. So I think neurologically, sorry, the the mechanistic explanation in some ways at least, you know, makes sense. There's probably some nice animal studies to support this. But the feasibility and the and the practical nature of doing the trial, um, I think, is immensely complicated.
0: Okay, well, that's that, that's that's super helpful. Thanks. Uh, now, in terms of 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 the primary outcome metric to assess quality of the meta analysis, you used a tool called AMSTAR two. Can you summarize for the readers and listeners how this works?
1: Yeah, I mean, so it's a really nice checklist. I mean, this msr 2 um, you know, developed by some r- the real leaders, I think, in this systematic review and meta-analysis world, um, re- and really addressing generally, I think, the problem of the emergence of the systematic review and meta-analysis. So clearly, there's been some very good science behind the decisions to standardize systematic reviews. So, I mean, these have largely, you know, or, or have uh, replaced, you know, this narrative concept that... You know, you can do kind of a ten-minute Google search and pick your favorite articles, and then um, you know emphasize those results. Um, and and there's been a, a quite of an, an investment in the infrastructure around systematic reviews and meta-analysis. And then, of course, in in doing that, we need ways when you know people are producing large amounts of systematic reviews and meta-analysis to ultimately evaluate their criteria. So you know, I actually I actually think you know the using the tool itself, they have made it. to their credit, I think they've made it relatively straightforward. I don't think that one needs to go in and be a, you know, a a leader in systematic reviews and meta-analyses. I would hesitate to call myself that, but the, uh, that, that, you know, with some basic understanding of the concepts that they're trying to address, that anyone can integrate these tools into their evaluation. Are they time consuming? Yes. So would your average person have the, you know, the time to sit down uh, you're a clinician who wants to do this no um, but I, I actually think they're they're generally kind of um, uh, very accessible to the uh, to the you know the, the lay science person and, then, and and I should say that they're, they're evaluating like the you know the basic features of the Um, of systematic reviews and meta-analysis, like, you know, is there a clear PICO statement? So, you know, this participant's intervention control outcome, the basics of, you know, how people are supposed to design systematic reviews and meta-analysis. And, you know, these are things that any, you know, someone with an undergraduate science background should be able to read a a scientific article and say, okay, yep, here's the participant, here's their their intervention, the outcome, and these are all clearly stated um, ahead of time. So they're actually, I, I find quite straightforward to use.
0: All right. Fantastic. Um, now, it looks like you ended up with 17 published studies that conducted 58 meta-analyses addressing the effect of systemic non-opioid pharmacologic interventions for the development of chronic post-surgical pain. Can you summarize the key findings for the listeners? Sure. Yeah. So first, I'll say that I was a bit surprised that we
1: found so many. Um, it, You know, that's there's not that many um, uh, chronic post-surgical pain studies, but uh, I think the reason you see, and I alluded to this earlier, you see so many of these systematic reviews, meta-analyses, is that um, they're parsed out in a number of different ways. So one of the last ones that was done, I think published in Anesthesia recently, um, w- was uh, somewhat comprehensive and in that included everything and then had planned sub-analyses. Uh, so I think they were trying to be the most comprehensive um, uh, of the, of the meta-analyses. Others have decided, okay, we want to focus specifically on, uh, on uh, uh, surgery, like breast surgery, for example, was a common one. Um, so th- I, I was a bit surprised that there were so many to the, for the number of clinical trials, but um, that being said, uh, you know, then we, we really were focused more on the quality of each of them. And I think, you know, the, Maybe the number doesn't really tell the story because, a, you know, a, system, a meta-analysis, systematic review, I mean, you don't necessarily need, um, you know, hundreds of these studies um, if you do, you know, what your intended purpose is well. Um, and some of them, I, I think, were just either missing a few key components. That's probably what we found most often. So they would miss one or two of the, uh, of the MSTAR checklist kind of must-haves. Um, and some of those must-haves related to registration, for example. Um, so uh, registration, trying to remember them all, registration, um, you know, considering um, publication bias and, and, anal- and analyzing publication bias um, uh, related to identifying studies that weren't included. Some of these key aspects um, that, that should be uh, identified up front. And I will say some of the, you know, some of these, uh, they date back to 2012. Um, 2010. Um, and some of these uh, systematic reviews were right at the cusp of when these guidelines were starting to be developed. So around 2012, you have some of the original guidelines for systematic reviews, um, meta-analyses coming out, and you know, the, then people are getting on board. So some of them are, are you know, about the time of integrating, and they may not have included some of those key concepts that later became important. Um, so there's a, there's a little bit of a mixed bag there and we did see things, you know, improving over time, generally speaking, um, in terms of the, the overall quality, um, specific quality, uh, issues were, were really related to the registration. Um, so registration is a, a bit of a new, interesting phenomenon. So Prospero, I think you guys, you know, you probably have a requirement for registration. Um, and as well as, as I, I think I alluded to the, um, identifying studies that weren't included. And this is kind of an interesting one, I have to say. So, I mean, everyone spends a lot of time identifying the trials that were included. That obviously becomes the focus of the meta-analysis systematic review. But in critiquing it, what we really started to learn was why wasn't a study included? Um, And that actually, you know, that's really interesting because you do find studies like, okay, you know, this previous meta-analysis included ABC, and this other meta-analysis didn't include A, but they did include BCD, so why didn't they include A? And they may, you know, the, the, the whole point is, and that this isn't a judgment of, you know, they did it for some nefarious reason, it's just being up front, and maybe there was a reason, you know, and, and it's hidden somewhere in the methods, but it's very difficult for the reader to understand um, why something would be excluded um, when it was seemingly included in other meta-analyses.
0: Now, that's a great point, and I think that's a perfect actually segue into what I wanted to to touch on uh, quickly for the listeners, uh, and then and have you you comment uh, a little bit more about this this these quality issues. There are a ton of quality issues uh, with um, as you as you as you suggest, and I, I I really want our listeners to know that RAPM has extensive instructions for formatting systematic reviews and meta analyses, which you can find on our website. Um, we have actually templated tables and we do follow PRISMA recommendations. We don't right currently require um, uh, uh, the, the registration. That's kind of a moving target, uh, but but it's probably an area that we're trending uh, towards. And the most important thing, obviously, is to, to, to follow a, a sound methodological approach. And I'd say the number one area that, that I find and we find problematic is that submissions lack a clear research question and a clear rationale for undertaking them in the first place. Often we'll see um, you know, that the, the objective was to, quote, update an area. That's not really a fundamental research question. And that's that leads to all sorts of, of problems. Um, the rationale really needs to target a specific question with a very defined population in, in, in intervention.
1: If I may, I'll go a step further with that. I think it also – so in doing so, it – to me, one of the things I was thinking of is that there, there should be specific justification for why another meta-analysis or systematic review is needed. Like, I think it's, you, one of the things that, you know, we ought to do when we're writing these things is survey the literature to find out how many have been done before it. And if the answer is one, or if the answer is 10, then the, then the justification should be, why does another one need to get done? Um, and this, I think this extends into, you know, it's, it's the same as if you were doing an original scientific contribution. I mean, you would have to justify, hey, there's this similar study that's out there and we're doing this one that's all admittedly similar, but we're, you know, bigger sample size, whatever, you know, different outcome measures, whatever, whatever is the unique aspect of it, but w- the real justification for why they're being done. And the recent, the, the most recent one, I think does a nice job of that, uh, of justifying that.
0: And, and and that is related to the 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 fundamental research question because if if a recent meta analysis was already done targeting your research question, you wouldn't really have a research question.
1: Yeah, I I think the two go hand in hand because it just makes you think critically. Okay, you know what more are we providing with with this type of meta analysis? And and sometimes I think we're probably not critical enough because many of the answers that one would seek to to um, to kind of resolve would would be within another meta analysis. So if you really had you know a, a question about a specific cohort, I mean it it doesn't take particularly that much to go to that meta analysis, pull out their effect size estimates for you know a given group of studies that you are interested in, and you know resolve the question that you want. You know, I it, so to me there's a lot that can be figured out from you do one particularly comprehensive meta analysis. And that's the template for anyone else that wants to, you know, resolve an issue specific population. Um, you know, I think a, a lot of times you can use that as a way of getting to your answer without having to, you know, recreate the wheel and do a, a full other study. There's also the, the challenges of, you know, publishing and, and the, that are going on behind the scenes here. So, you know, the, the, this is always an issue that kind of balances with productivity and these types of um, issues.
0: Well said, and, and and the other part of, of of quality assessment is this this tool called the the grade, and it's something we really recommend strongly uh, and actually require at least grade or some other tool equivalent to it to evaluate the quality of studies across the uh, individual outcomes. So this is fundamentally different than uh, your risk of bias for one study. This is. This is studies being brought together along one outcome. And do you mind just commenting on, on 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 your experience with grade?
1: Yeah, I think I mean all of these all of these different tools, right? I think that they're they're important to integrate into into the project to evaluate every step that goes into the that goes into these meta analysis systematic reviews. From you know simply assessing the the risk of bias to you know whether you're comparing apples and oranges in, the, in these systematic reviews, and that's I think that's the biggest question. Is I mean, and I should I mean I think all these tools are fantastic, and you put them together, and you can get to some level of quality of the studies within it and the quality of the of the meta analysis. Um, but I, I, there's still some aspects of it that you know the that I think are remain a bit of a challenge that are that are hard to address. Um, you know. I, I, and this re- maybe relates to, you know, as, as it'll be a shift. So, you know, people will start following the template and they'll follow, you know, they'll use the grade, they'll use the, whatever tool you tell them um, that, that is required to use. But there's other ways that, you know, will then become the issue. So the next, I think, will be how are we actually following whether people are, you know, what they register versus what they're doing? And by and large, there's no policing of that, right? So, I mean, you can say you intended on doing all of these things in, in the paper, and then you actually go back to the um, uh, to the uh, registration and it's, you know, wildly different. Um, and some of those things, you know, are very, very difficult to um, to address. And there should be room within science, of course, to change, right? I mean, it doesn't have to always be this hard and fast rule. Um, so it, it has to be a balanced approach, I think the, these standardized tools are fantastic, they're a good addition to the field, um, but I think there's still you know an academic rigor that one needs to uh, apply an approach to this, much like an original scientific um, contribution and that that thought has to go in above no no measurement tool will necessarily capture that.
0: So, so uh, we're winding down, but I have two two uh, brief areas that I just wanted you to to make a couple of comments on. So, when you kind of look back on on the experience of doing this this paper, uh, what what would be like the number one recommendation you would make to researchers uh, regarding how to improve uh, on the quality of a systematic review? Now, you kind of alluded to this, but I'd like to if, they, if you had to pick like one elevator little speech thing. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, so certainly what we've, um, you know, we do, I mean, many of the projects that we start in the lab start with some kind of systematic review. um, And we've shifted, I think, based on our um, learning through through this particular um, project, Uh, you know, do the search, Right and comprehensively upfront. And now, in in the systematic review world, your best friend's a librarian. So that's something I've learned over the years that, and it's certainly it's not that we've always done that, but using those resources that hopefully you have or you can get access to is is so important. Um, and we've we've had tremendous support here at UBC with uh, with librarian um, librarians to help us do the search once properly, the way that it should be done following all of the guidelines, because of course, they're familiar with the, you know, the search rules, guidelines, and, and all of those things. The other thing that, you know, now I'm asking students a lot about um, is the, the studies that aren't getting included. So, you know, but I think it's really quick to dismiss those. I, I mentioned that it's easy to say, okay, you know, and it's this classic kind of systematic review meta-analysis thing. You start with like 20,000 studies, right? And then, you know, you end up with 20. And it's like, okay, well, we just, you know, threw out all these, you know, all these uh, studies uh, and we got to this this core group. But it's really understanding, you know, past the abstract screening phase um, and, and into when you're actually kind of doing a deeper dive into the papers, you know, why they're being excluded and there being good justification up front. The other things are, you know, and some of them are really easy to follow. I mean, two reviewers have two independent people, um, you know, doing the the screening of the articles. I mean, the guidelines, I don't think the guidelines that have been set up are particularly punitive. Um, They're really just good scientific practice, much the same way if you were doing the original clinical trial, you would approach the problem, you know. Um, Test the the reliability of the reviewers, know that they're reviewing on the same basic principles. that kind of thing. And then you're really the, once that methodology is set up, I think the, you know, the, the quality will really kind of then writes itself. It's, you know, you follow these guidelines and
0: then your method section is airtight, Um, but it starts at the beginning. And you, and you mentioned you work with students and, and, and this is this, this, this kind of um mechanism to get in, introduced into research is is a common one because you're, you don't need a lab you don't need um, much external funding but but there's a real important skill set and there's also a, a complicated um you know statistical um uh, component to it are there training courses or or professional development opportunities that you would recommend for our listeners who might be interested in learning more
1: yeah so i mean all of my students what we start with is the is some modules that uh that the library offers and i suspect most uh, at least academic institutes will have a uh basic training in kind of systematic reviews and and um probably not the statistics of meta analyses but i'll say with this with the students i don't know if that's always the uh you know the primary outcome the primary outcome is can they you know d- develop the criteria um, and start evaluating you know, the, the PICO and, and some of the more basic elements. The statistical part um, probably requires some additional insights. But yeah, so we, we've always gone through the library's um, uh, information and, and uh, it, it's really been quite helpful. And I know Cochrane, for example, I mean, Cochrane would be the other obvious resource. I mean, they have textbooks and textbooks of knowledge um, uh, that, that are relatively openly accessible.
0: Yeah, and I think they have a lot of free uh, um, uh, uh, material that's online as well. They do, for sure. Yeah, and,
1: and they, they, I mean, they're certainly, you know, they'll dive into the yeah, the more complex topics, evaluating, you know, the
0: uh, publication bias and, and doing some of these
1: um, meta regression techniques that are really interesting. So,
0: John, thanks so much for uh, joining us. And, 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 of course, thanks to everyone out there who has listened in. Uh, we look forward to having you join us next time. Thank you for listening to the Rapham Focus podcast. Original music and production are done by Dan Langa. More information can be found at www.danlanga.com. We hope you'll join us in the future for more discussions with authors published in the Rappam Journal, and you can visit us at www.rappam.org.